Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm your Saturday host, Sterling Fox, and today, Rights Probe Director Bruce Party is deeply suspicious the Emergencies Act review won't include accountability of any kind. The Heart and Stroke Foundation's Opal Desmarais says there are lots of reasons why winter and the holidays are hard on the heart. Deloitte's Research Director Duncan Stewart has some 2023 predictions for streaming services and social media. And Royal Road's political scientist David Black thinks David Eby will break the 2024 fixed election rule and go to the polls early next year. So let's get started. Just a couple of weeks ago, the Public Order Emergency Commission reviewing the use of the Emergencies Act, headed by Justice Paul Rouleau, finished hearing evidence from witnesses. Mr. Justice Rouleau is presumably now uh, preparing a report based on the testimony he heard over several weeks of uh, hearings. So will the report be... A whitewash? Our next guest is somewhat suspicious. It's a real pleasure to welcome Bruce Party back to our show. Professor Party teaches law at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. He is also the executive director of Rights Pro. Bruce, good morning and welcome back to the show. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks. Well, you wrote a great piece uh, in the uh, post-media press the other day, Professor Party, about the Rouleau Commission, the Emergency Act inquiry that in late November uh, wrapped up testimony from witnesses. Now, you go on to say, what does the evidence show? The trucker convoy in Ottawa committed no violence and made no threats of violence. In fact, the superintendent of the Ontario Provincial Police testified the lack of violence was shocking. And yet... The government of Canada found it within itself to revert to the Emergencies Act. Describe what you think prompted Trudeau and company to, to reach for the, the sledgehammer to kill the fly. Well, you know, they probably felt like it was an emergency. And it probably was to them because it probably threatened their political narrative. But it doesn't amount to an emergency within the meaning of the act. You know, that that act sets out four different kinds of emergencies. And the one that the government selected here was a public order emergency. Right. And one of the things that you have to have in order to declare one of these things is 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 the use or threats of serious violence as you alluded to mm. and in fact and in fact that 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 is emphasized in the government's own declaration that invoked the act but as as you listened to the witnesses at the commission it became apparent that there that there was no violence and no threats of violence and so we're left with the question that you posed which is well what's the deal and a lot of officials referred to violence along the way. You know, the, the violence that was all around them, the violence felt by the local community. But on cross-examination a couple of times, I mean, for example, uh, interim uh, Ottawa police chief Steve Bell was on the stand for a while. And he spoke of this kind of violence, violence felt by the community. But on cross-examination, he agreed that he wasn't talking about actual violence. He was talking about the perception of violence. Right. The, 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 
the, the feel of violence from the totality of the actions that the truckers were engaging in, which were essentially rhetorical and ideological and, 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 and some honking thrown in. But by the way, the honking was stopped when a court issued an injunction. And when it did so, the trucks largely stopped. So right. the honking wasn't a problem after a certain point. So bottom line here is, according to the evidence given in front of the commission, there was not the use or threats of serious violence. And if that is not the case, then it would certainly seem to me and a lot of other people that the use of the act here was not, in fact, authorized or proper. Bruce, I'd like to quote from your article again. Quote, the government was embarrassed. Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland, who had been told by an American official that the truckers were making Canada look like a banana republic, had urged the protesters should be identified as terrorists. We also know that, close quote, we also know that Macron in France was talking to Trudeau and other world leaders were expressing their concern about what was going on in a G7 capital, the likes of which happens in their G7 capitals on a routine basis. Right. Right. Yes. And, you know, another way to put this is to ask this question. What was it that the truckers did that was illegal? And you're you're left, essentially, after the honking stopped, you're left with the answer that it was parking. They were, in fact, parked. Unlawfully, they're you know certainly in violation of parking bylaws and, and the like. But that was pretty much it. And so what you have here is a is an emergency being a national emergency being declared by a government, invoking an emergencies act on the basis that somebody is illegally parked and won't move. And that's embarrassing. Uh-huh. It's embarrassing because. The, the government and all of the, you know, the Ottawa police in particular, but the law enforcement officials could not figure out how to get rid of these peacefully parked trucks on mm. the streets in front of Parliament Hill. So let's let's skip ahead to now where we are with the commission and Justice Rouleau is reviewing the evidence and will no doubt publish his findings soon. Again, to, to refer to your article, Professor Party, quote, the commission is a ritual. And the purpose of ritual is performance, not outcome. The commission's purpose has already been served to create the impression that whether the use of the act was justified is a serious question to consider and to make it appear there is accountability without having to provide it. And then you add perceptive Canadians will notice the product does not match the packaging. Explain that just a touch more, if you could, Bruce, please. Sure, yeah. So people, I think, some people are, are, are perceiving the commission as though it is a court, and it's not. The commission is an inquiry that's required by the Act, but the commission is not focused and does not have the singular mandate to determine whether the government's invocation of the act was lawful. That will take place in a courtroom because that action has been challenged in a legal proceeding. But this is not a legal proceeding. It's not a courtroom. It's headed by a judge. 
And so it looks like a court. There's evidence yes. of witnesses and so on. But but it's not a, a, a court, and it is not there primarily to solve the legal question. It is there to inquire into the circumstances surrounding the invocation of the act, to make recommendations, to write a report. The report's not binding. The commission cannot find uh, liability legally. And, and so people who are hanging their hat on the commission to provide accountability for what has happened, I think, are putting their money in the wrong place. So the headline of the piece that you uh, that drew you to our attention again, Bruce, was the invoking the Emergencies Act was clear overreach. That is a finding that a lot of Canadians would expect, ultimately. I don't. I think it's back to the performance and ritual part of this whole commission. Uh, you say overreach. I say whitewash. What's the likely outcome from where you're sitting? Well, one can only guess. And, of course, it would be within the power of the commission to, to make that finding in part if they so chose. But, I mean, I, again, I wouldn't put my money on it. I, I wouldn't expect that to happen. I, I, I think this is part of the narrative. Uh, it, it, the, 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 the performance that we see at the commission makes it look as though all the circumstances and all the evidence is being investigated and, therefore, everything is fine. But but that that does not make it fine. And the and the real rubber is going to hit the road, I think, here when this question gets into a real courtroom in a real legal challenge where real rules of evidence are applied and you get to the bottom of something. Hopefully it will happen then. But it will probably, for my money, not happen at the commission. Indeed. Professor Party, always a pleasure to have you on our program, sir. We do appreciate your calm analysis, and I already look forward to uh, the combination of the release of Justice Rouleau's report and, of course, its eventual way into, as you say, a real court. You and I will talk at those points. Thanks again for this this morning. Great to have you back, sir. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. According to the Heart and Stroke Foundation of Canada, cold weather increases blood pressure and heart rate, which raises the risk of heart attack and stroke. We've had our major snow event here in Metro Vancouver already once. It's entirely likely we're going to have more before the end of winter. And let's talk a little bit about this. From the Heart and Stroke Foundation, Manager of Health Systems, Opal Demeray, joins us this morning from Victoria. Opal, good morning and thanks for joining us today. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Well, you, know, you and Victoria have had a little bit of snow up island uh, from Nanaimo North. They've had a ton, not as, uh, and we haven't had as much as they have here in Metro Vancouver. But we did have our one event already reminding us of real Canadian winter actually landing in our corner of Canada occasionally. And yes, uh, let's talk a little bit about all of that snow. And it just appears overnight. Bang, you wake up and there's six inches on the driveway and you, you roll your eyes. You grab a coffee and go, oh, geez, where'd I leave the shovel? And off you go. Yeah. Yeah, we have definitely seen so much more snow here on the West Coast uh, than some of our other friends in the rest of Canada, that's for sure, this year. So let's talk about all of the, because suddenly there you are and you haven't done any kind of exerting exercise and the driveway's sort of normal size, but, you know, it's suddenly 10 miles long when you got to shovel it and, and you're not any kind of shape at all. So what kind of risk are you assuming simply by doing what you need to do to get to work? 
Yes, I'm so glad you asked. We, we, as you said, we know that uh, more people die from heart attack during these winter months, and the likelihood of having a heart attack actually increases after a snowfall. Mm-hmm. So shoveling snow is definitely a relevant thing to think about. Um, oftentimes, people don't think of it as an exercise even, and you're moving sometimes hundreds of pounds of snow that's right. in a short period of time. So that's going to place a significant amount of strain on your heart, and for some people, that can be quite dangerous. And of course, and we we get to, we tend in this maritime climate here on the west coast, Opal, and you're in Victoria. It's the same deal there. We get really wet. So we don't get the light mm-hmm. powdery stuff mm-hmm. very much. We get the heavy stuff. The real you gotta really push it hard. We do, yeah. I mean, if you live anywhere in Canada, you probably know that even just walking through that wet, heavy snow, it's strenuous. Mm-hmm. It's actually called snow-related exertion. But you're absolutely right. Our snow on the west coast is different. It's heavier. Uh, it's really important to try and shovel that snow earlier before it gets frozen or mm-hmm. even wet or becomes more wet. Um, doing it in short bursts, making sure that you warm up. Trying not to do it right as you're leaving on your way to work is going to be helpful so that you take time to um, fit breaks in there and make sure that you hydrate while you're doing it. Treat it like you would a workout, essentially. Mm-hmm. And, with, of course, that's not typically the way we get angry and throw on some warm duds, grab the <laughs> shovel, and just get the darn thing cleared away and grumble, grumble, grumble. Uh, and it's it's not seen as, hey, I get a chance to do a little workout here, do a little cardio on the driveway. <laughs> we, we tend not to be that upbeat about shoveling snow oval. <laughs> no, we don't. There's also no shame in asking for help. So if you are someone that feels that you're at risk and you don't feel like you're in uh, physical shape, to be going out and having such a high-intensity workout like snow shoveling, ask for help from your neighbor or hire someone. And then alternatively, if you have an elderly neighbor um, and you are somebody who's physically able and fit to shovel snow, be a snow angel. You might just save their life. Mm-hmm. And, and another thing that comes up in a very neighborly thing, and we Canadians do it all the time, all blinking winter long, too. Somebody's stuck. Oh, let's go give them a push. So, you know, half a dozen people get on the backside of somebody's car and get them going. That's really uh, an intense exertion, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. The same sort of thing. You're not you're not expecting it. You're not warming up and you're not necessarily paying attention to your body the same way you would if you were preparing to do physical activity. Yeah, I'm looking through some of the notes that uh, the folks sent along with your uh, your stuff here, Opal. And one of the things that uh, crops up in this uh, heart attack business is booze. Talk to us about alcohol and heart attacks. Um, Alcohol uh, in an overindulgence of alcohol can absolutely play a significant role in your increase for heart disease and in turn heart attacks. We know that it can be a stressful time at the holidays. It can also be a festive time. And we know that there's a tendency to want to overindulge in alcohol. So limiting your alcohol consumption this holiday season and all year long is a really great way to reduce your risk for heart disease. Mm -hmm. So consider uh, sort of uh, keeping an eye on the consumption level at very, very least, correct? Absolutely. And try to swap out a sparkling drink with maybe some soda water and cranberry juice where you can, alternating with some of those alcoholic beverages or is an easy tip that can help generally reduce the amount that you're drinking. All right. Now, what about uh, all of the fantastic food that we're about to devour over the next two, three weeks? I mean, people wait and people only cook this once a year, so you don't want to miss another chance yeah. at it. And you know what I'm talking about. Uh, overindulgence, not of just the 
alcohol side, but we do tend to eat, overeat a little during this time of year, don't we? Definitely. Actually, the holiday plates are typically larger on average, and they're usually rimmed with decorations as well, too. So it's important to look at your plate and watch your portion size. So amidst all the turkey, the stuffing, and potatoes, and those good things, make sure you are filling your plate with uh, plenty of vegetables. And the uh, nice way that you can portion that out is by doing half your plate with vegetables, a quarter of your plate with protein, and then a quarter with whole grains. Ah, okay. Uh, let's talk a little bit of back to the the exertion side. Whether you're shoveling the driveway or the sidewalk, or helping push the guy next door out of the out of his driveway, uh, you got to take breaks. And that's one mm-hmm. thing that people. All right, I'm going to get this thing done. I got 45 minutes. I got to be downtown, so I, I got to get this done in 15 minutes. So bingo, I'm just going to bear down and get it done. And that could be damaging, couldn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, taking breaks, splitting up the task into a couple sessions is really going to be helpful. Um, dressing appropriately, so layering so that you're not getting too hot. Um, and I know it seems a bit counterintuitive when it's so cold out, but making sure that you're drinking water and staying hydrated while you're shoveling snow is also going to help. And generally just listening to your body. If something doesn't feel right, it's time to take a break or stop. And especially if you start feeling like you have chest pain lightheaded, shortness of breath, any of those symptoms, head indoors right away and call 911. Yeah, that's that's what I was about to ask you. Only a few seconds left here, Opal. And, mm-hmm. and can you expand on that just a little bit? How do you know? I mean, you, you, obviously, you're, 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 it's your body. You're tuned in. But how, what is your body doing that says, okay, time to just take a rest? Because this is, the, this is not normal. I'm not feeling regular here. What, well, are, you, the, what the, are you feeling? Yes, the signs of a heart attack, the more kind of classic signs are going to be chest pain, which can feel like squeezing or discomfort in your chest. It can radiate up to your left shoulder or down your left arm. You can have shortness of breath, sweating, sometimes jaw, neck, or back pain, as well as lightheadedness. But actually for women, sometimes those signs can be different. Women can experience a heart attack without a chest pain at all sometimes. Um, They also might experience more of a pressure in that lower chest, upper abdomen area. Um, dizziness, lightheaded, or even fainting, and extreme fatigue can sometimes accompany a heart attack with, with a woman. Right. So uh, I, I, if you're experiencing any of those symptoms in combination particularly, it's not time to just take a break. It's time to no. check yourself in, isn't it? Absolutely. And we want you to call 911. Don't try to drive yourself to a hospital. Um, the emergency services know, um, they prioritize heart attacks, of course, and sure. they know which uh, centers to take you to. So it's very important to call 911 or your local emergency number. Opal, thanks for getting up early on a Saturday morning to do this. This is a terribly important conversation to have, and I do appreciate your time. Of course, anytime. Thank you so much for having me. Uh- Look at, at some of the predictions from the folks at Deloitte for 2023. Yes, it's come to that time of year again. And Deloitte's uh, folks are saying that uh, global spending on social media next year will surpass $1 trillion. They're also predicting most va- major video subscription services will have some kind of ad package going on. And yes, we'll talk about paying to be on social media because Elon Musk already has. Here to talk more about it from Deloitte is their director of research. He's also their technology, media, and telecommunications expert, a Vancouver guy who strayed, moved to Toronto, and got a great job. Duncan Stewart is on the line. Good morning, Duncan. Welcome. Hey. 
Hey, Sterling. Great to be with you. Yeah, I actually told your uh, producer I grew up listening to NW98, so it feels like being home uh, sort of uh, vicariously. Well, it's great to have you back on your old favorite station. Uh, It's a great way to start the conversation, too. Duncan, one of the things that's come up, our, our question of the day is, are you ready to pay to be on social media? So let's dispose of this right away. This all came about because Musk, when he bought uh, Twitter, started talking about a $7 a month subscription fee. Uh, and there are other services. Or one of our tech guys uh, reminded us last hour that he subscribes to YouTube and pays 10 bucks not to have ads. So we're already paying to be on social media. Will that trend continue in 2023? Well, it depends. I mean, I can't comment. Uh, you know, my role at Deloitte, I'm not allowed to talk about individual companies. Right. But generally, it depends what you mean by social media, right? Like, there are versions of video services like YouTube, but not necessarily them, mm-hmm. where, yeah, there are different levels. You have different priorities. Maybe you have special status. Maybe you avoid ads. But there's other ways you can get things, too. You can get higher-resolution video feeds. You can get con- uh, access to special content that other people can't. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can you can have your stuff prioritized. Absolutely, one of the things we are seeing, not just in social media but in other media as well, is everybody's looking for a monetization angle. How do how do I? Because you know, during the pandemic, we were always watching a ton of video on demand, and we were on our social media. Because we were trapped in our basements and had nothing else to do. Good point. All of these companies, media and social media, had lots and lots of money and very low churn. People did not cancel the services because we, once again, were trapped in our basements with nothing else to do. Right. Now that that's no longer true, all of them are like, hey, people are starting to cut back on services. People are spending less time. I, as a media and social media company, I'm not making as much money as I used to. How do I get more money for my users? And there's a bunch of different ways. One of them could be charging, but another one is the opposite of charging. It's actually, instead of people canceling, look, picture you're on a video service, right? You got, you had five during the pandemic and you want to go down to two. As you reach for that cancel button, somebody says, hey, before you cancel, instead of paying us 15 bucks a month, what about paying us seven, but you got to watch some ads? Right. That's what we are seeing. That happened with Netflix earlier uh, in uh, uh, November. Disney is doing it now. We actually are predicting that every service will have an ad tier, if you want it, by the end of 2023. And Duncan, the kicker is that in the course of doing this uh, excellent report uh, and assembling these 2023 predictions, you also canvassed consumer trends and thoughts, and you found, to your surprise or not, it's part of the question, that many Canadians, I think a majority of Canadians, are actually really okay with ads uh, and uh, would, would, would be willing to pay for some uh, dis, uh, uh, reduction of ads content, but aren't willing to pay the big tab for no ads. Did that surprise you? It, it shocked, appalled, terrified. I was, <laughs> no, because I'm, 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 I'm 58 years old and I don't much like ads. Okay. And, and that's just me. That's just me. And if you gave me an option, I would go, no, I'll pay the 15 bucks. Cause you know, I'm an old guy and I make, have a fair bit of money. 
but when I look, I got four kids, right? And they're like 26 to 32, and they're spending a whack of dough on these various subscription services. Mm-hmm. So first of all, a majority of Canadians would rather watch some ads than pay the full price. You are correct, and that shocked me. Okay. Uh, only, uh, as a matter of fact, it's lower in Canada than it is in the States, the percentage who are willing to pay you know, the 15 bucks or whatever it is. Meanwhile, younger people are even more likely uh, to prefer the versions that have ads. Now, I have somebody said, that doesn't make sense. Young people hate TV ads. And I, I made a little bit of a joke. I said, they've never seen a TV ad. They have no idea what they're in for. <laughs> That's not true. But they are economically sensitive. Kids in general, and my kids specifically, would love to save a few hundred bucks a year uh, and watch them ads and put that money to better use. And as far as the streaming services are concerned, they don't really care because as long as they continue to have a variety of options, they they continue to have more cash flow coming in, correct? Correct. And it actually, they do care because they would much rather, I mean, first of all, they don't care whether it comes in the form of subscription or it comes in the form of ad right. from an advertiser. The other thing they really do care about is they don't want people canceling And in our survey of Canadians, over half of Canadians who were thinking about canceling said it was an economic motivation. This stuff just costs too much. So coming up with a lower cost or even a free, there's a thing called free ad-supported television or fast. There's a service called Pluto just launched in Canada, and that allows you to see video content for absolutely no money per month. So that's uh, that's another option that uh, these streamers are looking at. So let's talk about the proliferation of streaming services because they just they just keep adding more and more, and the cable companies and the Rogers and the Shaws and all of these just keep expanding the bundles. Is there uh, is there such a thing as too much of that, or are people again with our pandemic experience firmly in our back pocket? Are we just quite we become quite convinced the more the merrier? Nope. We have hit the limit. That's what I was saying about churn. 37% of people in the States, a little lower in Canada, about 32, have canceled one of these streaming services uh-huh. in the last year. We, we have hit the ceiling and it is behind us and we are looking at there are too many services. It's too hard to organize. It costs too much money. We absolutely see consolidation and reduction for the next few years. So will those streaming services then, with that competitive uh, angle attached to it all, be very uh, careful with their offerings of ads and bundles uh, versus uh, pay the big f- fee and see nothing? Except probably the, the other str- way, the probably the other way around. Oh, okay, I, I I would predict that that offering a lower cost version is their answer to those people thinking they have too many services. We'll see. We'll see. Okay, and what other uh, just in terms of the predictions you boldly put together for 2023, uh, the spending. Uh, so just in terms of goods and services on social media platforms, your your Amazons, etc., will surpass a trillion bucks next year. Is that a first? Uh, well, yes, it is. So it's up about 25%. Now, that's not so much. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not supposed to talk about individual companies, but you know, Amazon's not part of what I'm talking about. Okay. So there's this vision. You're on social media. I'm on social media. And I, I see something on social media I like, and I click on it, and it shows up at my house. No, 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 no. That's called shoppable media. It's really hard. That will happen one day. 2030, we're all going to be doing that, and that's what, how we buy stuff. But in 2023, it's not that. It's social media and influencers and creators as part of the journey. 
Uh, it is uh, higher in Gen Zs and millennials, uh, kids my my kids' age, or even younger than that. You know, eighteen year olds and stuff like that. We are saying that people who have seen something in their feed, who then go out and shop it and buy it and have it delivered, that is a trillion-dollar-plus economy. But it's not necessarily all within the app. Interesting stuff. Uh, Final question to you, and it's a personal thing here, Duncan. Back to our question of the day here in Vancouver. Are you, Mr. Stewart, ready to pay to be on social media? Uh, I would not, uh, and I suspect a whole lot of other people wouldn't. We'll, we'll have to see how that whole thing emerges. Uh, it is it is a, a form of monetization. Nobody has yet figured out if it's the best form of social media companies making money. Well, I'm, I'm glad to, to discover you and I are equally cheap when it comes to <laughs> exactly. those sorts of amenities. Duncan, great to have you on the show today. Thanks ever so much, and Happy New Year to you. You as well. Thanks. This headline in the Toronto Star a couple of days ago, EB's new B.C. cabinet builds speculation about an early election call, says expert. I dove into the article and discovered the expert is one Professor David Black from the Department of Political Communications at Royal Roads University in Victoria. So Layla and I decided to give David a call and get him to expand a little bit on why he thinks David EB is going to go to the polls before he has to. David Black joins us from Victoria. Professor Black, David, good morning and welcome, sir. Uh, good morning, Sterling. Good to have you with us. So uh, uh, what uh, what led you to believe this is essentially a pre-snap election cabinet shuffle? Well, fair enough. I mean, you know, the life of a pundit is, is pretty cushy and comfortable until you see your own opinions coming back to you in the national press. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, you know, it's uh, all well and good to opine on these things, but uh, sometimes there are consequences. So here's the case for an early election call, one that's been, uh, I think, uh, um, kind of not confirmed, but sort of ratified by the B.C. Greens who are preparing with their own nomination yes. uh, races. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've, had, we've had editorialists and columnists at some of our better newspapers in B.C. weighing in the possibility. So let me make the case that these wiser uh, folks have made. First of all, politically, uh, the 100 Days Action Plan. Yes. It is not only a legislative agenda to address, you know, the, the big scary problems that we face as British Columbians, health, public safety, climate change, and housing, but it is a, almost a kind of campaign brochure. Here's what government can do. Give us another uh, a term and we'll, we'll do more of the same. We'll continue to act on these problems. The second is, again, with respect to the political case, uh, David Eby's own set of circumstances. I mean, this is a, a premier who was uh, acclaimed. There's no direct mandate from the people and right. even from his own party. Uh, and so although one can carry on merrily for a few years without that direct mandate through election, it begins to test the limits of what we think of as the constitutional conventions that, you know, that uh, give a, any leader his or her legitimacy. The third, again, politically, is BC United, the, the likely name of the party, once it's uh, ratified by convention early in 2023, is not a party that's ready to campaign. Mm-hmm. And so, you, you know, when you've got your opposition party on the back foot without even a, an official name, those are, are, are agreeable circumstances from a, from a political point of view. Then well, there's the fiscal case. Okay. Uh, you have a $6 billion surplus, which has to be spent by March 31st, uh, and you have uh, very dismal projections for 2023, 0.5% GDP in BC. So politically and fiscally alone, there is a strong case to be made. 
So now I'm, I'm going to just quote uh, by way of uh, re- re- retaliation here. Quote, I, I don't know how many times I can say it. I'm committed to a fixed election date for British Columbia, and the reason is quite straightforward. I was all across the province. I didn't hear one British Columbian say, gosh, you know what I really hope happens now is a provincial election. Close quote. David Eby, when confronted by my colleagues in the media uh, 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 around this cabinet shuffle. Uh, deny, deny, deny. Mind you, there's same things being said about Justin Trudeau at the federal level. Not enough people really know who Pierre Polyev is. And if he's going to stand a chance of beating him at all, he's got to do it before people get a, get a handle on who might be the leader, the next leader uh, from a different party. So the 100-day plan, back to that, David, if you don't mind, yeah. is, is it's now become fairly standard fare for the new administration coming in pretty much anywhere in North America these days, the government governor, the premier, the whoever says, in my first hundred days, here's the action plan. But not as many of them come to the table with the kind of well-defined action plan that David Eby presented, do they? That's right. I mean, I think, I mean, first of all, the the, the hundred days kind of uh, uh, predicate goes back to FDR, back Mm -hmm. to the 30s. And, you know, the depths of the of the, uh, the Depression, uh, Herbert Hoover had been disappointing as a Republican, and FDR wanted to demonstrate that he was a person of action and able to, to get things done. And so that's been, it's been around for a long time. But I think in some sense, six-date election laws, which B.C. was actually the first jurisdiction in Canada to introduce, right. we, we innovated, we pioneered these laws, they, they kind of complicate our thinking a little bit about how governments proceed. If you take these organic conditions, let's imagine there's no fixed date election law. You've got a new premier, you've got a new cabinet, you've got an ambitious agenda. You're t- by, say, early 2023, you'll be two, two and a half years into your mandate. In normal circumstances, those are the things that might lead us to think that a government might seek an election call. True. It's a fixed date law that, that tends to kind of almost have artificially mess with our, our political intuition. Uh, and I think, again, uh, we have lots of examples. My favorite of kind of breaking of the fixed election uh, date election law was Harper, the Harper government. Harper introduces uh, uh, that legislation federally in 2007, breaks his own law in 2008 <laughs> in order to seek a new, another another minority government, which he did successfully. So we have plenty of examples, uh, even to the point of almost kind of political comedy, where these fixed date election laws are, are in, on the books but are routinely ignored by governments you know, in and out of pandemic, you know, federally, provincially, you name it. What, what they is, are not a, a constraint. What does your homework, Professor Black, tell you about what the voters think about all of this? I tend to think that fixed election dates are something the voters can hang their hats on. Finally, we don't have to follow the premier around for a year and a half going, is it going to be soon? Is it going to be soon? When, when, when? We know it's going to be October the whatever, and that's it. Uh, I would think a lot of voters are quite happy with that and annoyed when the government breaks its own rule? That's a great question. I mean, the fixed-date election laws were introduced in order not just to kind of as a corrective against political opportunism by you know, the party in power, but as a way to address the democratic deficit, the fact that people were kind of getting alienated and not showing up for elections. Yeah. That, that certainty would allow you know, uh, the voter to kind of you know, tune in when they needed to. Elections agencies could plan ahead. Uh, parties could move you know, in a kind of orderly pace to get ready for an election. Um, it, it was meant to really, you know, kind of restore public faith in in the system. However, I don't think we've seen a lot of examples. We've had lots of examples of kind of, you know, 
parties breaking the, the fixed election law where they paid a high political price. Right. Time after time, more often than not, the party in power that calls uh, uh, an election a snap election wins election. Well, no, and, no. Uh, no more solid example of that than the Horgan government uh, ditching the Green Party in favor of a majority in the middle of a pandemic. An absolutely, completely unnecessary exercise that the public supported, obviously. Yeah, I think, I think the public re- resets when we get to an election. The, 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 the pull of the process, the issues, the drama, whatever the, 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 the pretext, you know, for calling a snap election tends to be forgotten. And certainly opposition parties try to make political hay of that and say this was, you know, we don't need this election and, you know, people are exhausted, et cetera. But, you know, we, we line up and we do our, our job as citizens and, and we vote as if it were just a regular uh, fixed election, you know, sort of cycle. So I don't think the political price argument is, is persuasive enough sure. when governments have the ability to say, choose the, the moment to, to make the conditions work for them rather than against them. Okay, final question to you, Professor Black, and we're grateful for your time on a Saturday morning, David. Uh, so uh, if the, this is going to happen in 23, early in 23, or fall 23, and what are the success chances you give the NDP from this distance? Well, I think it, part of it will depend on where we find ourselves next year. If, if, if you know, economic gloom sort of uh, settles in, as, as seems to be the case, I think they'll want to go earlier rather than later. Mm-hmm. But I think they also need to establish some facts on the ground from the 100 days plan. And a lot of these, these, this, this new legislation, these are big problems that are going to take a long time to solve. Sure. I think they need to establish some facts on the ground, housing, health, public safety, and, and climate change. So I, I would think, uh, again, and they may just carry on to fall 2024, but um, I would think maybe uh, early summer, which is unusual. We don't have many summer elections in BC or, or the fall at the latest. But certainly I think there's a strong case for an election somewhere in 2023 before conditions deteriorate out there and leave this government with a lot less room fiscally, too. Interesting stuff. And, of course, uh, the, the opposition party still doesn't have an actual name uh, that, that the voters would it's recognize. It's an unusual handicap to deal with, yes. When you, it certainly <laughs> kind is. of a nameless party, yes. yes. David, thanks for this. Uh, great to speak to you, sir. I really enjoyed the conversation. We must do this again. And particularly, uh, it's, going to get, it's going to get pretty active around here. And we, we did appreciate your joining us this morning. Thanks. Oh, glad to be here. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live 6 to 9 weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.